This is Samuel L. Jackson, and you're listening to the Force 5 Podcast. And now, for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, but five, Force 5. What's up, listeners? I am your host, ex-video store clerk, screenwriter, and fellow listener, Jason Kleberg, and this is Force 5, a show where I force my guests to come up with a movie-themed top five list topic, and then we reveal our picks on air. Now, right off the top, I'm going to let you know, based on a few pieces of listener feedback, I'm trying something a little different with the format of this episode by getting right into things and focusing solely on the list. So, That means no featured review, no fake ad. And those things will be back next week, uh, depending on listener survey stuff. So if you really like them, do not panic. I'm just experimenting a bit with the format. Uh, Now, I mentioned a survey. I sent a survey to a bunch of listeners who have emailed me in the past or have been on the show. And the survey is also on the Cinematics Facebook page and my Twitter feed. So you can voice your opinions there. I'm just trying to make the show the best it can be, and the only way I can do that is by listening to those who listen to the show. So please give me your feedback. If you miss the featured review in the fake ad, let me know. If you're like, I'm super glad they're gone, let me know that too. I want to get all the feedback so I can make the best decision possible for you guys. All right, show stuff. Director Terrence Martin reached out to me. He asked to be on Force 5, and anytime a filmmaker asks me if they could be on Force 5, I'm going to make the time. I love filmmakers. Now, normally I make it a point to watch whatever it is that that filmmaker is on to promote prior to recording because I feel like it's both my responsibility of being a good host and it's just kind of a sign of respect. But in this case, we had a really quick turnaround and I was not able to to watch Getaway if you can beforehand. But talking with Terrence really made me excited to watch it afterwards. We talked for a long time, both before and after we recorded, and he's just a really passionate person about making movies. And I think it really shows in his film, which I watched almost immediately after recording this. Now, if you're going to watch Getaway, if you can, I think going in blind is the best way to experience this movie. It's about a marriage that's on the rocks and just watch it and let it play out without genre expectations. This film emits this really unsettling vibe the entire time. And there's also a scene, I'm not going to spoil it, but there's a scene near the end of this movie that will probably make a list at some point. I know exactly what list it would be on. I'm just waiting for somebody to pick the topic. Anyway, you can find Getaway if you can on Tubi right now. You're going to find a link to that in the show notes. But without further ado, here's top five stuck in nature films with the director, Terrence Martin. Welcome back to the Force 5 Podcast. Today, I am joined by Terrence Martin, co-writer, co-director, and co-star of the new film Getaway If You Can, which also stars Dominique Braun and Ed Harris. If you missed Getaway If You Can during its theatrical run, you can find it on Tubi. Terrence, how are you? Great, man. Thanks for having me. Your show is like the the, uh, discussion I wish I could have had as a kid, but everybody wanted to go (laughs) off and play in the park or throw snowballs when I wanted to discuss movies, so it's it's been great. uh, Great hearing your stuff. Thanks, man. That's uh, why I created it, you know? L- much like your move to Patagonia during COVID, uh, this was my creation during COVID so I could talk movies with people because I couldn't go to the theaters anymore. Yeah, right on, man. Well, it's been fun listening, so I'm happy to take part. Well, we're going to make some some killer podcasts today, but uh, and, and I totally want to talk about your film, but first, uh, I'm going to save that because it really, I think, leads nicely into our topic. So I'm going to start with some softball questions so my listeners can get to know a little bit about your film sensibilities. And uh, I'm going to start off with a question I ask pretty much everybody. What are some of your favorite films of all time? 
Well, my favorite that I keep going back to is Rear Window, Hitchcock's Rear Window. I just mm. think it's a perfect thriller. It's It's got like um, a tone as well that you just want to live in. Like both characters are so likable. The score is so awesome that it doesn't, it's not a thriller that makes you feel sick or makes you feel at all negative. You're super into them investigating the murder. So I just keep wanting to live. I, I probably watch it every year. And I think it's great for filmmakers too, because Hitchcock had such a distinct visual style. It's so much more simple than the filmmakers now, like a Spielberg or Ariuto. Like his shots are really easy to break down and look at. And I just find them so beautiful in their simplicity. Uh, so that's a movie. A lot of filmmakers, I think, choose that movie, but it's one I, I, I absolutely adore. You know, I discovered it when I started to really go back into old cinema when I, you know, became 18 and really started, you know, looking at every movie I ever could. And I, I just adore it. But as far as like a fun one that is unique to me, I would say Rounders is one, the, the poker movie. Yeah, good one. Because um, I used to play for a living. So when I would take bad beats or have a horrible session, I would always watch that movie because it would make <laughs> me feel so much better about what I like. I would lose maybe, you know, I don't know, a couple grand at most. And this guy just, you know, goes on a tear and <laughs> goes through his whole bankroll, which is like the worst thing you can do in poker. But just seeing that experience, there's there's not many very realistic gambling movies, and, and that's that really stands up. That you know, even since then, we haven't had a had a poker movie that even approaches that. So shout out to David Levin and Brian Koppelman, who are the creators of Billions, and that's that's a John Dahl movie, but that's really their baby. They wrote the script, they played in illegal rooms in New York, so so that's a personal favorite that um, that I think is an underrated classic. Hopefully in your uh, poker career, you never ran up against a Teddy KGB. Uh, well, tons of tons of types like that. You know, I played at the Commerce in L.A., which is, is, is a crazy place. I remember once a bunch of cops ran in and some guy had like murdered someone in a state halfway across the country. And he ended up at the poker table at the Commerce. So you can wow. imagine. Yeah, it's like the the biggest poker room in the world that's right in central LA and people don't even know, know it's there. It's right off the five freeway, but you could go on East Easter morning and there'll be 20 games going all the time. So once you get good at it, you can just, you know, make your own hours and just basically clock in whenever you want it. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I have been asking this other question of creatives lately and the answers have been all really, really interesting. Let's say Terrence, they said, Hey, any property you want, any budget you want, what's a what's a property that you would choose to write or direct something for if given unlimited resources and budget well in a perfect world where i wouldn't have to like you know send 800 emails to justify one creative <laughs> decision i would choose the legend of zelda the original game because when i was a kid that thing just had me for weeks you know like i had never had a movie or story that took me in that deep and uh, when I studied Joseph Campbell and, and realized that Lucas used Campbell to create Star Wars, I had created like a three movie structure of Zelda when wow. I was younger, just as a fun exercise, you know? So yeah. I, I would love that, but I know in actuality, like, like it would be like such a huge property. I think a lot of the love of the story would, you, you would end up having to um, massage so many people and it would be so high budget that I, I, I have friends who work on that kind of stuff and they're completely stressed out, you know, because, you know, those properties are, are not just, you know, auteurs. They, they wouldn't just hand that to Paul, Paul Thomas Anderson, you know, and say, go make your Zelda movie. Although we would probably love it. You know, it's, yeah. it's not the way it's done on that level. And I thought of for, for this 
film, one that I would want is um, a book by David Grant called The Wager that came out last year. It's a true story about a, a ship in um, 1742 that left England. And about a year later, uh, 30 castaways showed up in Brazil and they were shipped back and said, oh, my God, like they were heroes because they had survived, you know, the Patagonia coast. And about six months after, three survivors showed up in Brazil calling out all of those others who survived as mutineers. And it turned into this huge scandal. And I just saw, I, I looked it up and I saw that Martin Scorsese is uh, actually attached to direct directed it's by the uh same author who wrote flowers of the killer moon so i thought man if i ever had all the power in the world i'd try to t talk marty into like letting me at least take a stab at the script because it's it's going to be an amazing movie when it when it comes out oh man that's awesome yeah it's really cool well good stuff there, yeah this there's always something interesting that comes out of these conversations Z legend of zelda is one that i'm so shocked has never been adapted and I can't think of anybody even writing a script. I'm sure people have written like specs and stuff, but I've never been able to read one. It's so shocking to me that nobody's tackled that. I'm sure that they probably will now that Super Mario Brothers is like a huge success. Yeah, I think that that has kind of broken it open now. You know, like there's got to be someone because I think that was the one that true gamers really, really got into. So, hey, producers, I'm, I'm ready, man. Three movies right there. Let's make Let's a deal. Let's go. <laughs> we, we already got the outline. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about movies uh, specifically. Get away if you can. So this is a movie that that you wrote, directed, co-starred in. Came out last year. For my listeners who aren't familiar with the film, what's the hook? Like, why should they go and check it out when it premieres on Tubi? Well, I'd I'd still like you to go to Prime or Amazon and watch it without commercials. But I'm really happy that that Tubi is putting it up there. They were really generous, and we're doing a one year exclusive with them. So. So look, I think it's like two bucks on Prime right now. But if you if you oh, want to see steal. it, for, yeah, if you want to see it for free, you know, to be really soon by the end of the year, I would say say to people it was marketed a bit like a thriller. But we were this is a movie we put our own money into, our own time. We were really trying to play with the genre. So if you don't go in expecting us to hit the beats of a typical thriller, like um, some of the criticisms were, it doesn't move the way I thought it would be for a thriller, but this was all intentional. You know, we, we wanted, because it was our own time and money, to, you know, subvert expectations. You know, you think you're in for one movie and then another thing happens. Um, so I would want people to take their time with it. I think survival as well. Uh, when you're in nature, you can get away with more quiet moments, which which when I was studying uh, two-person movies, there aren't that, that many of them. Um, yeah. So many are just like wall-to-wall -wall dialogue. Ours is not like that. There's a lot of quiet moments. Like we wanted the viewer to really feel like they went out into nature and they could breathe in the air. And you take big risks doing that, you know? You, you People could just get bored and turn it off right away. But if you invest the time, I think uh, there's something hypnotic about it. I was lucky enough to watch it on the big screen with Ed Harris and at our premiere in Santa Monica. And man, like there's something about the big screen and the nature that just you know, overwhelms people that I think can get lost unless you really plug in and focus. Um, you know, so that would be my, my, my recommendation. I, it's Ed Harris. He's great. Yeah. And he, he's really proud of the film and our performance in it, which, which is amazing to me because he's always my, one of my favorite, not only, uh, actors, but he directed Pollock, which I absolutely love. And, um, you know, started in that as well. So, so working with him was incredible. And, he gives his endorsement. So 
That's one reason you should watch it. <laughs> yeah, if you don't trust our word, go and uh, trust Ed Harris's word. You know? Yeah, <laughs> seeing the movie sitting by him, he hadn't seen the final cut on the big screen was just like such a great feeling for us because, you know, it's a pro bono project for him. He's He took a chance on us. We had shot all the footage of just my wife and I and actually had like basically a full movie and we were able to show that to him and tell him what we wanted to do with his character and he took the leap based on on what we had shot, which which was great that he liked the final outcome. Oh, that's awesome. That's that's really cool. Yeah. I did not realize that uh, Dominique was your wife. Yeah, that, that that's kind of the genesis of the project. I wanted to do something that she and I could do with no pressure of like investors that we could kind of play with because the beginning is just us playing. You know, we're doing a lot of improvisation. We're doing a lot of... Uh, um, um, I wanted to to make a movie that wasn't locked into scripts. I had written scripts for about 10 years and I became very frustrated with just trying to, uh, in a film, um, get the script. It can be very frustrating, you know, because sure. so I wanted to make a movie where we were improvising. So there was no right or wrong answer. We were just kind of going with the story. And you can only do that if you take a lot of time and you're not beholden, I think, to a studio or an investor. So that was the genesis of the project. I, I thought she was a fantastic actress and I wanted her to have the platform for that. And it seems from the early reviews that people have really liked her, her performance in the film. So that's great. Well, the two of you uh, co-wrote it and co-directed it as well. How did the how did the idea come about of, of doing this like on the water? Well, I love island movies. I'm a surfer and I just wanted to put us in a place that we could we could work without any pressure of a, of a movie set with a very small crew. And, yeah. and I thought, you know, why not do an island movie and kind of um, mix an island movie with a relationship movie? I hadn't seen that done before where um, it's more about can you salvage a relationship than it is about survival on the island, but then kind of intertwine them. Um, so that that was kind of my thought. Well, it's pretty obvious why we're uh, why we're doing our topic today, which I guess <laughs> we, we kind of threw out a couple of different ways to phrase it. How would you say it? Would you say like top five nature survival movies or would you say stuck in nature movies? How would you word it? Yeah, I forget what the original pitch was, but I imagined it to be like survival and nature movies. Um, yeah. And and I had to kind of refine on my own what I qualified as that. And I'm sure you did as well. Indeed. Yeah. And we'll get into that in a second. This is so obviously it was born out of kind of your passion for those types of movies. You you have a bit of it in Getaway if you can. You definitely have a bit of it in The Donner Party as well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So how did you kind of pare down the options for your list? What were your qualifications? Well, my qualifications were um, basically movies that I love that really inspired me to to write in in this genre. And through my years, I, 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 I took out a lot of movies that I think like technically are better films because some of these movies that I chose affected me so deeply. I, I really think uh, movies are such a personal thing when we try to say, hey, this is the best film because of this and this and this. It's fun to do, but it's at the same time, like it's a little ridiculous because we all have different experiences. We all like a piece of music, a, a performance affects us a certain way. It's so individual. And I may be a little bit uh, um, picking movies person out of personal reasons more more than so much like that they're considered classics. Um, sure. Yeah. Um, I did the same thing. I have some really, really personal picks on here. I have four films on my list that have never come up on the show in 130 episodes. So there oh, were, wow. were, 
Yeah, we're breaking in some new ground on these ones here. The only real qualification I had was that nature had to be the main antagonist in the film. Like the character was overcoming elements of nature versus like surviving the game, for example, where, you know, the main antagonist, while there is nature that they're fighting against, or Ice-T, I guess, is fighting against, the main antagonist in that are human beings. So for mine, it was really like nature was the hurdle that these people had to overcome. I looked at it in a very similar way. Yeah, there's a couple I I, I would have had, um, but it, it was more like a, a villain driven than nature that I took off the list because of that reason. Yep. And then I also, um, I excluded movies focused on animal attacks. Jaws could be considered surviving nature because a shark is part of nature, but I, I went with more of like the terrain as there there are animals that pop up in some of my movies, but it's really the terrain that's like the main factor in mine. Mine too. I took Jaws away because it's a hunt movie more than for me, survival nature. It's really about a person deciding to hunt that shark. That's the movie. Yeah. It's that like if, it, if someone was stuck and Jaws was hunting them and they had to survive, I, I could have included it. But for me, that's a hunt movie. Yeah, there are certainly some shark movies that could have made my list. Uh, although, as I have it now, none did make my list. But this is going to oh. be fun. Terrence Martin, you ready to get into this list? Yeah, let's do it. You know what's going to happen? You know what's happening here right now? I know what's going to happen. No, 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 no. What? You just made the list. Top five. Top five. The top five. Why don't you kick us off with your number five? Okay, so for number five, I have 1997's The Edge. Okay, check it, please. A photographer with an eye for beauty. Okay, great. Let's do one more. <laughs> nice looking lady. Your wife? Yes. Why'd you ask? A man of wealth who lives through books. Charles knows everything. Get a question, ask him. I seem to retain all these facts, but putting them to any useful purpose is another matter. Each the essence of the civilized man. Well, Charles, we're going on an impromptu adventure. You come too. Oh, all that money. Never knowing what people value you for. And I think your wife's pretty cute too. So, how are you planning to kill me? Hold on! <laughs> But when civilization disappears... Why do we even think they'll come looking for us? Our friend's a billionaire. You know what happens when you misplace one? All they have is each other to rely on. Most people lost in the wilds, they die of shame because they didn't do the one thing which would have saved their lives. Thinking. Just, this is my B-movie pick. I have to take you to where I was when I saw this movie. I was stuck in middle Pennsylvania, my junior year of um of college at this liberal arts university i had like debated on whether to go straight to hollywood out of high school i was totally wishing i'd, I'd taken that choice i had to take like geology or whatever for my major this <laughs> semester it's completely miserable and um where i grew up like i was really far from from a theater you know so movies was always like a big plan like what time was this playing we'd get dropped off by our parents and i never like you hear Tarantino talk about movies in LA and it's like, God, they just had so many cinemas. They, ever since they were kids, they would just go and see films. It wasn't like that for me. So I was so depressed in Pennsylvania. I just decided for the first time to get in my car, drive the half hour to a theater and like uh, the character in Jackie Brown, Max Cherry, you know, go see whatever was playing and maybe go see three or four movies. Just, just go to the church, you know? 
And I just show up and I see the poster and I'm like, The Edge, yeah, down, I'm down. And I went in and I absolutely love the movie. I mean, it's a script by David Mamet, for those that don't know it, absolutely crackles. It's, it's not so much hyper-realistic survival, but uh, it's, it's just like a testosterone-fueled journey about these two characters. One is this billionaire who believes that one man can do what another man can do. Uh, the villain is played by um, Alec Baldwin in his creepiest. Um, <laughs> yeah. He's really, really great in it. And um, they basically get stranded. Um, one guy is sleeping with the other guy's wife. You don't know this going in. And they have to survive together. And lots of crazy stuff goes down against them, nature, and a bear. And it's a really, really fun movie. I, um, I uh, read uh, some background on that film that Alec really wanted to, to have a beard at the start of the movie. And Lee Tamahara, the director, was like, no, the point is, like, you're this clean-shaven. And he, he fought with him, fought with him, fought with him, and he felt like he was overweight. So he did not want to cut this beard, but the director made him. And it just really helped to make him more, all the more insecure, which I thought was great, because you can really feel it. I think it's one of his best performances. All right, well, this is the first part where we match up because this is also on my list i actually have this at number one so i'm going to talk about it here now at number five but yeah i had this on my list at number one i love the edge i think the edge is so underseen and i really do think it's underrated great performances from baldwin and hopkins you can really feel that angst between these guys yeah because hopkins character his uh his character's name is charles and he's like real, real suspicious of Bob and and his wife because they're openly flirting. And you can see how disgust, disgusted he is. These guys would tear each other apart, but all of a sudden they find themselves needing each other to get through this wilderness. And then there's a third guy in there. Um, Harold Perrineau plays yeah, uh, Bob's assistant. Great. And he's kind of like the buffer between them. And he's he's really holding his own as an actor here too. And then... We got to mention Bart the Bear. Bart the Bear (laughs) is in here as this giant Kodiak. And the moment where they first see the bear, or they they actually hear the bear for the very first time, they're mid-conversation, they're kind of getting their wits about them in the the forest here, and then all of a sudden you hear the bear. And Steven, uh, who's Perrineau's character, just like, you know, stop, stop, wait, let's, let's listen. And they, the camera pans across all three of their faces as they're just kind of in terror. Great, great sequence there. Great score by Jerry Goldsmith. Uh, I, I really think this is uh, Lee Tomahori's best movie. I think it's super underrated. The Mammoth stuff, I'm a huge Mammoth fan. So anything Mammoth I was going to see, you can like feel those Mammoth beats in the, in the screenplay especially when uh, Bob and Charles are psyching themselves up to like kill the bear. And yeah. <laughs> he's like, I'm going to kill the bear. Say it. I'm going to kill the bear. Say it. Just that repetition, those beats. And then, you know, it obviously ends with one of the greatest lines in survival film history. Today, I'm going to kill the motherfucker. Just such <laughs> a great line by Anthony Hopkins that I cannot do justice to. I love the edge. Um, extremely underrated film. I think if you're into survival films and you haven't seen The Edge for one reason or another, you got to go check it out. It's so good. Yeah, it does what what Hollywood movies do so well. It takes a premise. One man can do what another can and it tests it and it, you know, disproves it. And is it true or not? And it keeps building on that theme and idea. It's it's really a wonderful movie. 
Um, yeah. And it's got and it's completely fun too. You know, survival movies can be tough for some people because you know when you get gritty with it and you really want to do it in a realistic way, um, it can be tough to watch. But this movie is a pleasure all the way through. And and um, Lee Tomahori said, you know, my goal with this movie was to to do the best bear attack ever filmed in the history of cinema. And I have to give him credit for what he accomplished. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, I think up until that point, uh, up until The Revenant, it probably had that. I think The Revenant probably does a little bit better. But uh, I mean, this one is amazing still to this day. Well, The Revenant, uh, I always was bothered that you can definitely see their CGI in a couple of those shots. I mean, I, I think The Revenant's a great, great film. But for me, I, I can really detect the CGI. And when I see that, it really took me out of the film. I, I didn't didn't understand why he put those shots that were quite obviously um, computer generated in. I'll have to go back and watch it. I haven't seen it since it was in theaters, but um, oh, okay. I remember it being really cool in theaters. Yeah, it's a great film too, for sure. Like you, I was, shoot, at the time I was like 16, I think, when this came out. And this was at a period in my life where I had friends who had, one of our friends had a brother that worked at the movie theater. So we would just go see every single thing that came out. And I remember it was an argument between this and Peacemaker, which also came out with the George Clooney movie. And we went and saw this instead. And I'm really glad we did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Great. All right. So I'm going to I'm going to slot that in as my number five here. Number four for you. Number four. Uh, since I decided to get into film, I always had an affinity for what can be done on a low budget. Um, I, I, I judge films differently. And I'm not saying everybody should, but. I think there's special consideration to independent filmmakers, people who decide to just on their own, get money, make a film. I've always had a, a great appreciation for that. Um, and so my pick is 2003's Open Water, um, which is Chris Kentis and his wife, Laura Lau. They're a husband and wife team. They had made one other feature before this, which didn't really get them on the radar. It's kind of a little bit uh, known because it, it was one of the first uh, Billy Crudup starring movies, but it was just a independent feature that didn't take off for them. But they had the guts to go and make this movie about two stranded uh, scuba divers, and they get they get left um, um, in the open water. There's a true story, and um, they have to fend off sharks. Other people go on vacations and spend their days slaying around. We have a story we're going to be telling for the rest of our lives. As we are stuck in the middle of the ocean. Oh God. Oh. It's okay. It's okay. This can't be happening. Susan! Susan! I didn't want to go back and watch it because I, I remember viscerally how much like I thought they just got under my skin. So I went and got this <laughs> yeah. quote about the movie from, um, from uh, Roger Ebert. And he said, rarely, but sometimes a movie can have an actual physical effect on you. It gets under your defenses and it sidesteps. It, it's only a movie reflex and creates a visceral feeling that might as well be real. And that's exactly how I remember seeing this on the big screen. Sure, some of the acting maybe is a little off, but they used 
non-famous actors, you know, they just went out there on the ocean with real sharks and shot a movie. It's incredible. Like, so I, I usually don't like to say the numbers on a movie because I don't like that to be why people like it. But on the, on independent films, I think that's important because there's so few films that are huge, huge successes, you know, Blair Witch people talk about paranormal activity. And this kind of came in between that window. They shot this movie for $100,000 of their own money. They sold it at two, for $2.5 million at Sundance. And then the movie made Lionsgate $60 million. And it's still now playing on HBO Max. So, so this is a true, true indie success. And the film really, really works. Um, and the guy, he even got a, a David Letterman interview out of it. And if you go on YouTube, you can watch him. He has like Letterman like amazed for like seven minutes, which is so <laughs> rare for a filmmaker. It's really incredible. Um, and, and they didn't go on to make, have a history of making many more movies, but you know, like kudos to this team, husband and wife made a great movie, open water, check it out. If you really want to, you know, get freaked out. Yeah. This is one that I saw. I must've seen, I didn't see it in theaters, but I know I saw it like right when it came out on DVD at the time. And, uh, I was really impressed cause I didn't have a lot of expectations, two people floating in the water for, you know, an hour and a half. How do you make that work? Yeah. And they found a way to do it for sure. Definitely. All right. I got to put that on my rewatch list. Uh, so that's open water at your number four, my number four adjusting. This was going to be my number five, but obviously I put the edge there. This is one that I have loved since I was a kid. This is another one that has never come up on this show. It's a movie from 1987 called Whitewater Summer. In 14 years, I've done all kinds of games. Soccer, sailing, computer, tennis, even chess. This unique challenge of the great outdoors. Until this guy showed up. What's going on back there? Nobody really great ever slept in dirt. Amplet's about a half a mile on the other side of this gorge. I'm scared. You ever see a picture of Da Vinci pitching a tent? No. Let's talk about the really great campers. Are you familiar with this one? Kevin Bacon, yeah. Man. Yeah, Kevin counselor. Bacon. Yep, <laughs> man. So I, as I was growing up, I always, in my head, merged this and The River Wild together because they're both Kevin Bacon films that take place kind of like in nature. Yeah. But this is one that I remember my parents renting for us when I was real young. And it was one of those that we kept wanting them to rent again and again because we liked it so much, my brother and I. Yeah. This one's lower on my list just because the kids aren't technically stuck in nature until the third act, although they're definitely surviving nature throughout the whole film. Um, it's about this kid, Alan Block, played by um, Sean Astin, and he's your typical like city slicker kind of dude. He's got his whole summer planned out, and then his parents meet the survivalist named Vic, played by Kevin Bacon, and he convinces Alan's parents to send him into the wilderness for six weeks during the summer. And Alan does not want to go, uh, but, you know, he, he ends up getting sent there. The parents do not know that Vic is kind of a psychopath. He's, <laughs> he's an insane camp counselor, uh, and he's taken three other kids along with him. So it's a pack of five people. And they they go out and they just basically he's he's training them how to survive the wilderness. Now, he is really, really hard on Alan. He keeps having these punishments for Alan. The first one is he like takes away his knife. The second time he leaves him on an island to fend for himself for the night. Yeah, and he keeps calling him Dickface. That's his <laughs> name for him, basically. 
keeps calling that's the era right (laughs) yeah no kidding that's one of the things i really remember about the film is like how rude they are all to each other the kids are just so brutal to each other in that movie (laughs) yeah and then he he at one point leaves them dangling on a cliff face because they do like a pendulum swing and alan's kind of a goof he's not real coordinated you know he's never going to make this this swing and Kevin Bacon just leaves him hanging like, you better figure it out or you're going to die. And uh, at, at one point, of course, in going into the third act, Vic is incapacitated. And now it's time to see if all of the stuff he's put these kids through worked and they have to, you know, survive without Vic and, and bring Vic to safety. But this, I think, is a really great, really fun 80s film. Uh, it was directed by a guy named Jeff Blechner, who was primarily a TV director. Oddly enough, he directed a uh, TV remake of Rear Window. And he also did, he did a bunch of episodes of like Hill Street Blues, ton of different TV movies, but it's really solidly shot. I don't know that he did any other theatrical films. Yeah, I don't think it was a big hit. I I barely remember it. It it came on HBO Max. That's when I, when I caught it. Oh, really? Um, It's available there now, or they just call it Max now, right? But, uh, yeah, whatever it's called now. Man, I, I love this movie. I think it's so fun. You know what's cool is you could look at that movie now as a kind of uh, ode to our generation where our parents would just let us go on. Weird, like I remember going to summer camp all the time with these crazy counselors that reminded <laughs> me of that character. You know, like we had a little river and when it really filled up after a rainstorm, the counselor just took us and like we were floating, hitting rocks. Like I think this day and age that's happens much, much less, you know? So this movie is like a, like a cultural artifact in a way. Like it reminds me of, of the craziness of my childhood where (laughs) really all bets were off, you know? Indeed. So that's, that's my four whitewater summer. I highly recommend it. It's just a lot of, a lot of fun. Good pick. Yeah. All right. Three for you, my friend. All right, three is alive. Um, 1993, about the uh, soccer team or the rugby team that crashed into the Andes and had to survive. It's a true story. They had to resort to cannibalism after a certain amount of time to to make it. What if you were trapped in the most brutal place on earth without anything to live on? We've got to eat. You would. Without anything to hope for. It's out there in the snow. It's just me and Antonio. Food. How far would you go to survive? It's what we gotta face. I won't do it. In 1972, they overcame the impossible by doing the unthinkable. Alive. Rindar starts Friday, January 15th. What I loved about this movie most of all is I had read the book by um, Pierce Paul Reed read before in about sixth grade and I absolutely adored the book. I mean, I'd never read something about survival that gripped me so much. So I had really high expectations when the movie came out, even though I was still young, I I wanted to see what a director would do. And I thought they, they, you know, they didn't get everything of the book. Obviously it's very hard to do in a two hour movie, but I thought it was a really accurate representation to what I had read. And that was the first time I experienced that. So I thought, Oh, wow. Like, a director could take a great book and find this kind of movie. I was completely impressed. Um, usually had been let down. I, I would say reading's my first love. So I would try to read everything that was a book before I saw the movie. And usually I was, you know, disappointed, but this, this time I wasn't. And it's interesting because, um, this is Frank Marshall, who's like a legendary producer. He didn't direct many films, but this is one that he directed. And I imagine he must've had a really, really strong, reaction to the book as did I and just said like okay cool like 
I'm going to take off the producer hat and jump into the director's chair. And um, I haven't seen it, you know, since, you know, but I, I don't know if it holds up. And I know Netflix is making another series based on the same book. So I, oh. I wonder, I wonder um, how that will be. Maybe it'll have like a cultural reevaluation of the movie. Yeah, maybe. I, I know, um, you know, it's got a lot. It's got Ethan Hawke in a, in a, in a big role. Oh, okay. And, and um, um, anyway, it's just for me, because he did such a great job of taking a story I had read. That's why I put it so high on the list. It's also got a great plane crash scene. I mean, the, the, the plane going down is incredible. Everything's so cool. They're all partying on the plane and then boom, like one of the great cinematic plane crashes in the history of cinema. Um, just, I remember sitting in the theater just being absolutely blown away by it. Alive is one I don't know that I've seen. So oh, I need wow. to I need to check this out because I do love a good uh, movie plane crash and obviously we loved uh, survival and nature movies but I don't think I've ever seen it. Oh wow, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, if, if you really want to know the story deeply, read the book. But the movie is incredible. It's it's uh, it's really well done. All right, that's alive from what did you say ninety three, right? Ninety three, yeah. Ninety three. Okay, cool. My number three speaks to your indie sensibilities. This is one that if you haven't seen, I really high, highly recommend it just to see what they did with uh, a shoestring budget from a guy who does amazing work with shoestring budgets, uh, Adam Green. This is Frozen from 2010. Are you guys sure about this? Yeah, yeah, it works all the time. All you have to do is go over there and you say like... I said that I could pay for all three lift tickets and then I left my credit card at the gas station. Right. Totally on money. Just not enough for all three. Last run, gotta make it. No one knows that we're up here. This is so messed up. Are you a nice. fan of Frozen? Yeah, I love Frozen, the chair, <laughs> yeah. chairlift movie. Yeah, I actually went to the premiere of Hatchet, his first movie, and met him. Yeah, and yeah, I'm a really good friend of his line producer on that film, so I've been following Adam Green's work, you know, since the beginning. This movie uh, actually works as like a prologue to Hatchet too, as well. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, this is a film about these three people. There's a guy named Dan, his girlfriend Parker, and then uh, their best friend Joe. And they go to this ski resort. They're just going to, you know, have a, a good weekend skiing. And on their final night, they convince the ski lift operator to let them go up one more run. They're closing down the mountain because of weather. And they're going to be closed for a week. And the ski lift operator's like, all right, fine, go up. And then somebody comes to relieve him. And he does tell the the guy who's relieving him, like, hey, there's three more people up there. But the, the guy who relieves him sees three people go down the mountain. And he's like, okay, so I guess that's them. And he shuts the ski lift off. And nobody knows these people are up there. So all of a sudden, all, these three people are trapped 50 feet in the air. And there's nobody coming to save them. And they will not make it a week. Because it is <laughs> like freezing cold. A blizzard's coming in. You can see them like wearing down, wearing down. It turns into just trying to figure out how to get out of this ski lift. It's one of these movies where you watch it and you think, what would I do? 
Um, I know for a fact I would not do what the first guy does, <laughs> and <laughs> I'm not going to reveal what that is. But if you are curious and you don't want to watch Frozen, this one has come up on a list before. It was in top five horror movie death scenes way back in episode 68. Um, it's it's tough. I think it's a very underrated, very underseen film. It's really tense. It's really well acted. And we talk practical effects, man. No CGI, no green screen. The actors were 50 feet up on an actual ski lift. Like some of the camera operators were scared of heights. And so they would not go up and shoot it. So Adam Green, who is also afraid of heights, had to go up and shoot this movie. So it's it's all practically done. Again, it's like open water. What what can you do for an hour and a half with three people stuck on a chairlift? They he nails it. He did it. Yeah, yeah. It's one of the really well done independent contained movies. I mean, everybody's had that thought. Who's been to a ski place? What would happen? And he he went for it, and and it really it doesn't fizzle. It keeps ratcheting it up. Like he does a great job. Keep uh, keep uh, building the tension. I haven't seen it since that first time in the theater, but it, it really reminded me of the same reaction of Open Water. Like, oh wow, like primal fear just tapped right <laughs> into it. You know. Yeah, I rewatched it for for that episode that it was on episode sixty eight, and man, it's still harrowing. Like you see throughout their throughout the movie, you just see them getting more chapped, and you see them getting like bruised and battered by the elements and by what they're trying to do to get down. And it is it's a it's a definitely a tough watch. Yeah, hats off to Adam Green. Good job with that. One. <laughs> Indeed. So that's my number three, Frozen from uh, twenty ten, not the Disney movie. Number two for me is Castaway. I love you, and I'm going to see you soon, and you know what that means. From Academy Award-winning director Robert Zemeckis. Hey, is all this turbulence from Santa and those eight reindeer? At the edge of the world, Hello? Chuck Nolan is about to discover no one can save him. It's a search area the size of Texas. But himself. You don't have a match, will you? <laughs> hey, me fire! Tom Hanks. Hold on! Away, rated PG-13. Which, um, for me, if, if, if Edge is the B movie, Castaway is the A movie. It is um, just the kind of, it, it's one of those movies that if it's on, on a screen, I just get locked in right away. I think it, it deals with the, with the theme of time so well. You know, there's this FedEx employees played by Tom Hanks, and all he is is in a rush all the time. Rush, 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 get this package off. It opens with this great sequence about how packages go through FedEx and how we are just constantly needing everything to be all at once done in that second and how this guy is just like compromising his own life with his wife and he ends up getting stranded on this island and he has to reevaluate who he is and his his perspective of time while trying to survive all the elements. Um, I wonder why I, I love the movie so much. So in research of this, I listened to to um, some interviews, and I didn't realize this, but Tom Hanks had spent four years with um, William Broyles working on this script, just going back and forth, no contracts, no nothing, just saying, hey, like, I have this idea about time and a castaway movie. So they spent four years really thinking about it before they even brought Zemeckis in. And then with Zemeckis, they all took it to a new level. So it just goes to show, like, what level of commitment to story um, to create a, which I think is a cinematic masterpiece, not just in the survival genre, just just one of the great movies. You know, survival. We've talked about low budget, but sometimes when you do low budget with survival, uh, people feel a little cheated because it's epic scope. You know, this movie is like big, big budget. Zemeckis at his prime, so you just get 
everything, you know, like you really feel you there. It's so amazing that the island sequence has no score, which is so rare for a big Hollywood movie. Uh, so you're just hearing the ocean, you're feeling it. Um, I think it's um, such a lovely movie. I have, I have an ode to it and get away if you can. I don't want to spoil it for other people, but there's a transition, a time transition uh, a cut, which I absolutely love in Castaway where, where he goes from, from being stranded to surviving. And as a viewer, you have to put in all the story. How did he lose the weight? How did he do this? And I love cuts like that. I just think they're so magical because it's like a whole movie that you're not seeing. So in yeah. Getaway, if you can, we have an ode to that. And we're kind of taking it to both characters level and playing with that idea. Moonlight does it really well, too, between the three different characters. You know, they do these cuts where it's like they, he becomes a whole new person. And I, I just love that empty space that allows you to, like, think about the movie later and what, what must have happened in between those two things. Um, I think it's really bold and, and just a movie that if you haven't seen, check it out. It's, it's, it's an absolute masterpiece, in my opinion. This is a film that, um, so I saw it in theaters in 2000. I was working at a video store at the time, and it was one of those movies that they would play clips from on the TV above the register like all day long. So it's one of those movies that my brain grew to like say, I don't want to see any more Castaway, right? But maybe in 2012 or 2013, I was on a work thing, and there's a guy named Noel Lee who created the company Monster like not the energy drinks, but uh, like monster speakers and speaker wire and all that stuff. The guy whose son created Beats later on, or I think he he was a part of creating the Beats headphones line. And he invited us to his house. And uh, his house is like this amazing mansion right outside of San Francisco. And he's like, I, I want to show you my theater. So we walk into the theater. It's this big, like, rounded couch that we all sit on. And he starts playing a, the plane crash scene from Castaway. Oh, nice. And we didn't know it at the time, but the whole couch was part of a D-box setup. Oh, uh, so you're just feeling it. So when the engine blows, the whole couch sinks to the side. As I think he's in the bathroom when it happens. And he, like, hits the wall because the plane shifts wildly. The whole couch shifts we all fly to the side. And of course, we're in San Francisco. So we're th- like immediately earthquake. Oh, no. Oh. Um, and he's like, chill out. It's the movie. He plays the whole scene with the D-Box thing. It gave me a whole new appreciation for Castaway. That plane scene is bar none one of the best plane scenes ever in cinema. Yeah, I agree, man. It, I mean, it, it starts with a live for me, but this is, you know, 20 more years of technology with CGI and it's yeah, it's incredible. I mean, I, I just um, I think um, at the time it came out, people didn't know what to make of it because it's so quiet and so contemplative. You know, it's uh, um, I think when you decide to pull dialogue, you can really um, push people away. You know, people have to give a bit more. They have to really take their time. They have to be patient with the movie because they're not just getting information and talking. It's nervous silences and and if you give the time to this movie, I think it's really rewarding. I think it's a, a real meditation on on time and, and what what be, how important it is to sit back and you know take it all in. I feel good every time I watch it. Gives you a whole new appreciation for volleyballs as well as <laughs> as companions. <laughs> yeah, if you look up like an interview with Tom Hanks, he talks about how they came up with that whole idea. It's pretty funny. 
That's awesome. Yeah. Well, you're uh, you're talking no dialogue, and that's a perfect lead into my number two, which also has very little in terms of dialogue. It is a film called All Is Lost from 2013. This is a film directed by J.C. Shandor, starring Robert Redford and a boat. <laughs> that's pretty much it. <laughs> Robert Redford that's doing it. it all. This is a movie about a, a, a guy that's truly alone. Uh, there are 51 words spoken in this movie, and they're all from a narration of a letter that you see at the end of the movie. But uh, the man, which is what he's called in the script, because he doesn't have anybody to tell his name to, so you never know his name. And it's a 30-page script, so it's just about this man sailing in the middle of the ocean. He's on a 1978 Cal 39 sailboat when he awakens to his boat hitting a, uh, a floating shipping container. And it's ripped a hole in his hub, and this is where the story starts. And then from that point on, it is just one thing after another. Like, he has to patch the hole, then he needs to get the water out of the boat, then his navigational equipment goes, and then a storm comes, and then the boat tips, and then he gets the boat righted, and another storm comes, and it's just one thing after another. And it is all Robert Redford. Like, Redford's got a whole, he's got decades of amazing performances, going back to, like, the 60s, but... This could be his best, like no dialogue. He basically emotes the turning of the gears the whole time as he's trying to fix one problem after another that is put in front of him. Just amazing to watch. He was nominated for a Golden Globe for this. I was shocked that he didn't get an Academy Award nomination for this. I thought he, I I don't think anybody was going to beat McConaughey for a Dallas Buyers Club, but certainly I think he could have been recognized for this. It's just an amazing performance, a great score. And J.C. Shandor is one of these directors who just continuously makes these really amazing films that kind of go under the radar, like Margin Call is amazing. Yeah, I love Margin Call. The Most Violent Year is really great, but All is yep. Lost to me is it's, it's his best. It's just a really claustrophobic movie because we're just spending time with Redford on a boat and then at one point a smaller boat. <laughs> and what he does with that is so great. Yeah, it's really bold to just decide to not take out any deeper themes, like uh, just have it be about the technicals of survival. Um, yeah. Because really, that is what survival becomes. You know, in a movie, people want thematic resolve, and he just like puts you there, and you're there, and you're with this guy as he tries to figure out what the fuck to do to survive. And I thought that was amazingly bold, um, just to pull out all the convention of storytelling that we're, that we're used to. Um, I really like that film a lot. As far as Oscars, though, man, it, like what I learned is it's all just luck and who spends the oh, most. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, he, he should have won for Jeremiah Johnson, in my opinion, another survival movie that I didn't pick that could be up there. I mean, I love that film. Like, that's a, a, a great I mean, there's a million movies every year. It's just like so many actors nail it. They all deserve it. Right. I mean. It's a crowded field for sure. What they do is they are like um, swayed by transformation. And because McConaughey got so skinny, people go, oh, look at the weight they lost. So the, the weight loss kind of overshadows any other performances. And, and, um, but, but yeah, McConaughey was great in that film as well. But, um, but it's, it, that's all just luck, I think. Even Tom Hanks was saying in an interview about Castaway, he goes, I get, I get congratulated on my Oscar on Castaway all the time. But he didn't win an Oscar for Castaway. <laughs> yeah, you're but, right. Yeah. So he says that he gets congratulated on that more than he does <laughs> Philadelphia, which he won for. Yep. Um, but yeah, great, great pick, man. Robert Redford's amazing in that. And, and you can tell, like, 
Like he went to town. He he went for it. This was not just a dial it in studio movie where you know he's uh, doing a romantic lead. He he really went for it. Yeah, he did. And props to Chandor for not um, for for keeping it realistic with the dialogue. I always hate it when in movies a characters by themselves. And they do something and they say something out loud just for the audience. Like J.C. Shandor did not break that immersion because you wouldn't do that in real life. And Redford's just like, I got to take care of problem A and then I'm going to take care of problem B. And you're just going to watch me do it. Yeah, this might be one of the most realistic survival movies ever made just because of that fact that he pulls away all the conventions of, um, you know, screenplay theme and, and, and what we're used to out of that. Yeah. Well, I don't think we're, I, I would highly doubt we're going to match up on our number one. So we might've just matched up on one. What do you got at your grand finale, Terrence Martin? All right. This, this one I also feel is like completely underseen. When I was looking to do Getaway If You Can, I, I didn't want to like um, kind of ape other films like a Tarantino style, like where you're like copying other films, but making it your own, which I, I love his films, but I wanted to like live in movies that I was trying to make. So it was like watching every two person castaway movie I could possibly watch. And I discovered this film by John Borman, who, de- who, who Deliverance could be the number one of a lot of people. I love the film Deliverance. Sure. I also absolutely love the book Deliverance. Uh, it's a poet named Jay Dickey. He only wrote three, three books in his whole life, but Deliverance is his masterpiece. So like, I didn't feel like Deliverance was such an uh, improvement on the book that I would put it at my number one, even though the film and the book are absolutely incredible. And if you haven't seen them, you, sh- you should. Deliverance often makes like the best hundred films lists. Um, it- it's an amazing film. But this is another John Borman film. It's called Hell in the Pacific. But time is 1944. Lee Marvin and Toshiro Mifune find their own Hell in the Pacific. Two men trained to kill, alone on a forgotten island in an endless ocean. Their own private arena of life and death. Their own inescapable hell in the Pacific. Today at 4 on 11. This is really a Lee Marvin project. Lee Marvin, for those who know cinema history, is famous for Point Blank, which is uh, another John Borman movie. And he was a soldier in World War II. He was a sniper and he was dropped uh, into Japanese areas before the main group to pick out his shots. So you can imagine like how stressful a job this was. And this story was his chance to kind of reconcile with the war and, and his friends who were killed. And it also stars um, Toshira Mufuni, who is famous for being Kurosawa's main guy from Rashomon, from High and Low, from The Seven Samurai. Like, he's the great Japanese. He's barely done any U.S. films at all. Since it's just these two guys on this island that are stranded there. One is on a plane crash and one has had their boat crash. And it acts as like this very strong anti-war statement because you're just seeing two human beings trying to survive who are on wrong ends of the war, but they must come together. And it, it, it almost acts as a satire. Because when you see war taken through just two people trying to survive, it just seems so silly. You know, they don't bring any of the trappings of of what the countries are fighting for, any of these greater. They're, they're just trying to live on this island. And it, talk about quiet. Like, this is a quiet movie. If you're going to watch it, I just turn off your phone. Just, just plug in. It's almost like a silent film, watching these two great actors go at each other on an island and try to figure out their survival and then 
their survival together. Um, and behind the scenes, Conrad Hall shot this movie. This is an early movie for Conrad Hall. He shot Cool Hand Luke before this, and then Butch Cassidy after, and Conrad Hall shot a American Beauty. Like, he's one of the great DPs. He's passed away now, but it's just beautiful photography. Um, he had actually grown up in the South Pacific, so he knew the light so well and captures this, this movie so brilliantly. The score was done by Lalo Schifrin, who's really famous for, for the Mission Impossible theme. But he did Dirty Harry, he did Enter the Dragon, and it's a really cool score. It, it, it mixes Japanese and um, 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 uh, it, it's, it's, it's really, really beautiful. Um, and I, I think there's so, so few movies that are truly anti-war that are also work as great films. Like we, everybody loved Top Gun, but that movie right. is like propaganda. Like, it's just like America goes, bombs someplace. We don't know what it is. It's probably a bunch of brown people who are bad. And we just like get off on all the pyrotechnics and all this like maverick, uh, you know, fighting. And, and we don't think about men like, this is not good for the world. It's a great film. It's, it's a lot of fun. But, you know, like this movie is two people who fought. And I, I didn't mention Mifune was also, he provided uh, Saki for the kamikaze pilots in World War II. Oh, wow. So they both like really wanted to kind of get the war out of, out of their systems. And for whatever reason, when the movie came out, maybe because of the anti-war sentiment, it didn't find an audience. So the producers actually tacked on an ending and John Borman was so pissed. He went on TV and he said, do not go see this movie. And he later joked that the millions of people took his advice because nobody saw the movie. <laughs> but I totally recommend it, man. Like he's he's known for, you know, Deliverance and Point Blank and even the Emerald Forest. I think he's more famous for. But this movie is incredible. You know, the performances by Lee, Lee Marvin and Mifune. It's just um, it's just one people shouldn't forget. All right, so I got another one for my for my uh, to watch list here because I haven't seen this one either. Yeah, a lot of people haven't. I've seen like the I guess it would it sounds like a loose remake of uh, Enemy Mine. I've seen Enemy Mine, which feels like it it is probably a remake of this in some regard. Yeah, you definitely could see that the director of Enemy Mine has seen this film, um, um, and it, it's a, it, it's crazy how some films that can be so good just kind of get forgotten by history. So when I discovered it, I felt like, wow, like, look at this gem. How, and here we are <laughs> on your show promoting it for people. I hope they can go and find it. You know, Borman came up in my, uh, in my honorable mentions because, like you said, Deliverance is probably on a lot of people's survival list. I did not put it at my number one just because the man antagonist – it's not necessarily nature. It was, you know, the, the folks that were living in that nature that they were in. Yeah. If you, if you read the book, it, it's really about the river. If, if you go back and read um, Dickie's book, it really gets into the river is really the antagonist. The movie, because it's got to be a shorter time period, becomes more about the, the hillbillies, you know? All right. I got I to gotta read that book, too. That's another one I haven't read. Um, my number one is also really, really underseen. I did not know it was an underseen movie until I started uh, researching for this episode because I love it. I've loved it since I was a kid, and I figured a lot of people loved it, and I guess that's not the case. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna try and clue people into the existence of a 1991 film called K2. When I stand on top of a mountain, just for one second, I feel the truth of my life. Oh my God, we're going to K2. 
Welcome to the death zone. Starts Friday, May 1st at select theaters. This is directed by Frank Rodham, and it stars Michael Bean and Matt Craven. So it's based on a stage play by Patrick Myers, who also adapted it for this screenplay. But it's about uh, two weekend warriors, and they decide to take on K2, which is the second tallest mountain in the world. And it is certainly the most deadly mountain in the world. It's nicknamed Savage Mountain because approximately one person dies for every four who reach the summit. So you basically have a... 20% chance of dying as you go up there. Uh, Michael Bean plays Taylor. He's like this thrill seeker attorney. And then Craven plays his almost exact opposite friend named Harold. He's a, like this married down to earth scientist. And Taylor runs into a couple of friends. They're testing equipment for a K2 climb. And he just begs them to come along. And finally, the billionaire who's in charge of the expedition, he agrees after Taylor and Harold uh, save them from an avalanche during their test runs. Like many climbs on K2, a whole lot of unplanned catastrophe happens. And then near the end of the film, as you might imagine, there are only a couple climbers left, one having to help the other down with a broken leg and brave impossible odds. Bean is always great. Matt Craven is really great in this too. He's a Canadian act a character actor. He's really memorable in terms of his look, but you might not be able to, to put the name to the face. He's been in Jacob's Ladder, A Few Good Men. Uh, I think in the mid-2000s, he was in that movie Disturbia. It was also the last film by Frank Rodham, who really didn't direct a ton. He's probably most famous for uh, directing Quadrophenia in 1979, the Who rock opera. This, for me, though, was is one of those films that was a schoolroom classic. I remember seeing it when I was in grade school. It was one of those, like, uh, the teacher wheels in the tube TV, yeah, and they absolutely. put this on because they're hungover or whatever, and <laughs> they just need to yeah. keep the kids busy. For some reason... I remember seeing it and thinking like, this movie's amazing. This is like the biggest movie ever made. And for years, I thought it was probably like Jurassic Park level success. I, I thought it had to have been huge. And then as I got older, I realized nobody was really talking about K2. But it wasn't until this list that I really researched it and found out it was a huge flop. It debuted at $1.3 million. It was like 16 the week that it debuted. It didn't really stay in theaters for longer than a week. It's never been released on Blu-ray. But for some reason, I've always been drawn to this movie, thanks to those, I don't know, fourth or fifth grade showings of it. I love this movie, um, and I think it's severely underseen. K2 from 1991. Have you ever seen K2? You know, I can't say that I have. I mean, I kind of have this vague recollection of the poster and seeing it when I was younger, but it gets lost in kind of the mountaineer movies like Everest and, mm -hmm. you know, vertical alive, alive to vertical limit. Yeah, I, I don't I can't pick apart certain scenes. So I'll definitely give it a look again. Yeah, especially since it made your number one. But this 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 is your number one because the edge because I picked the edge at five or when I built my list, this was number two. So yeah. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah, I re I really love it. The Edge is is my number one uh, as written, and actually, you know what? Let's let's recap our list for the listeners, and I'll recap mine as it was written. I'll go first here. So I had at number five, Whitewater Summer from 1987. I had Frozen from 2010 and number four. 
And number three, I had All Is Lost from 2013. Number two is K2 from 1991. And then number one was The Edge from 1997. I had number five, The Edge from 1997. Number four, Open Water, 2003. Number three, Alive, 1993. Number two, Castaway, 2000. And number one, Hell in the Pacific, John Borman, Lee Marvin, Mufuni. Check it out. Hell in the Pacific. All right, we got some killer killer movies here, and you were right. We only we only uh, matched up on one. I thought we might match up on All Is Lost as well. I, I I was like, all right, if we have one match, and that that might be it. I thought you were going to go for Castaway 100, percent just because I think that movie is such an obvious masterpiece. But it, it, anytime you're inundated by images, I worked in a video <laughs> store as well. Like there's something too that it, you know fatigue. So somehow you got Castaway fatigue. <laughs> Yeah, dude, I tell you, with that one and Shrek, those two movies, it's like if I, I, I my brain can't do it. But I tell you what, I, Castaway, it won me over with the way I saw it at uh, Noah Lee's house for sure. <laughs> yeah, I bet. And Noah Lee must have realized how how impactful it is to have made this whole demonstration just around this film. Oh, yeah, that, that was his one demo. Now, I'm sure you had some honorable mentions that you would have loved to make your list if it was like top 10. What were some of those movies that you left off that you regretted leaving off? Oh, man, there's so it was really tough for me because, as you know, it's the genre I love. Um, the first one I really wanted to put on is The Deep, which is a Balthazar Carmacher movie who's really famous for doing like um, um, big Hollywood movies. What's the one he did? I'm blanking on the name right now, but... Um, counter it's like a drug movie with mark Wahlberg. um counter something oh yeah um contraband contraband that's it that's it that's the one i was looking for that's a really fun movie too but he he's from iceland i believe and um this is a, a true story of an icelandic fisherman who was stranded at sea for like six hours and when everybody thought he was dead because it's freezing cold water but he had some kind of condition about his weight that allowed him to survive but the interesting thing about this film is that when he survived, nobody believed him because nobody could survive that. And the government started testing him against like their version of the Navy SEALs. And it's all a completely true story. And he just got down and dirty, got in the sea. <laughs> the actor said like when he um, when he uh, was afraid to do things, Cormacker would just jump right in the frozen water and, and with him, you know, to get these shots. And it's an absolutely amazing movie. It's called uh, The Deep. But um, it just... It didn't like inform my journey so much that I, I, I could include it. Sure. Other ones are in, Into the Wild, which is more of a road movie, but I just think it's a fantastic film from Sean Penn. The Grey by Joe Carnahan, which is kind of a battling hunting wolves movie, but it also has a very strong survival element. That one's on my honorable mentions too. Uh, the original Lord of the Flies, black and white, uh, a very early independent film. Great book. Um, Rescue Dawn by Herzog. Captain Fantastic, Jeremiah Johnson. Man in the Wilderness, which is like an early version of The Revenant um, with Richard Harris. And um, yeah, I, I wish they could have all been, we could do a whole nother five on on those if we wanted. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you kind of covered most of mine. I also had uh, The Naked Prey on mine that wasn't almost. mentioned. And then uh, I almost put this, I, I was real close to putting this on my list. 2015's The Martian, which I think would would count. It's uh, Matt Damon stuck on Mars as he's trying to get a signal to NASA to come pick him up because they thought he was they thought he was dead. Oh, absolutely fantastic! And that's an independently produced book, one of the few independent books that he just threw up there. And man, Ridley Scott makes an amazing movie of it now. 
now yes, the guy's killing it. It's an author, so so it's a it's an inspirational story of how that that movie got made as well. I love that film. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I, I actually thought you might choose that one. I was very close. I was very close. If we had done done number six, that would have been on my list. That would have been. Uh, all right, Terrence, before we get you out of here, let's uh, let's get some plugs in. So people need to watch your new film, Get Away If You Can. How can they do that? Well, you can, like we said, you can watch it on Prime for a couple of bucks. You can wait for the free exclusive we have coming with Tubi, which should come in November, I think, or maybe even October. I'm not sure the dates, but I know we're doing one year exclusively with them. And um, yeah, I really hope people dig it. I, uh, if you don't like it, don't say anything. <laughs> you know, because when I when I first came out, like I said, I had such a support for independent films. But when we did our initial press for this, we said like, "Hey, let's just put this out movie out to any everyone." And I was a little hurt by like how people who didn't respond to the movie felt the need to just go on Letterbox like they were like these mini Gene Shallots, like get away from your can, get away from this movie if you can. It yeah. blows like the wind. And I thought like like where's the film appreciation? You know. Luckily, we had one reviewer absolutely, you know, get so moved by it and really hit the beats. But I would say to people like for independent, independent films, man, show the support. If you hate it, just, you know, tell your friends. There's an unnecessary, uh, like visceral reactions that people have to films. It's weird. I think some of it comes from what they expect watching trailers. It's one of the reasons why I do not watch trailers before I watch movies. I watch trailers after I watch the movies. That's smart. Number one, because it gives away story beats. Number two, because it gives away surprise. And number three, because a lot of the times the people that make trailers aren't the same people that are making the film. So they can skew it a certain way. And I, I think this one is one of those films where you got to go in blind and, and you just got to let it unfold in front of you. Yeah, I agree. We we had a, a pretty spirited debate with our distributor on how to market it because there were kind of two ways you could go at it. But one way would kind of ruin the surprise at the end. So we went with that you're trapped in a thriller. But yeah. people, when they when they hear genre, they do want you to hurt, hit certain beats of the movie. And the trailer doesn't give you any idea that this may not be a thriller. It just says this is a thriller. But but we were a little bit um, tied. Like we we um, it's a tricky one to market for sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's really a, a bit a bit experimental, you know, and and that is a bit poison too. So we fe- felt like if we could get the thriller people, enough people would say, "Hey, wow, this surprisingly takes some turns that I wasn't expecting." And we actually get thanked all the time on Instagram with people discovering it all over the world, saying, "Wow, like I really got a, a powerful um, experience from your film." So it, it's been really nice. That's awesome. We always knew we'd grab some. Per- we hoped we would grab some percent of loving it. You know, I would rather make a movie that some people love and a lot of people hate than a movie that's just like lukewarm. And it's a little bit my problem with Rotten Tomatoes is it's, it's, it's just like our, our, our movie shows up with a, with a spoiled tomato, even though the, the reviews are very polarizing. So for Rotten Tomatoes, movies that polarize people don't work so well because, you know, a lukewarm movie that everybody kind of likes gets a good tomato, but a movie that's like interesting and maybe takes some some leaps that they weren't expecting that people didn't quite like but found interesting kind of just gets the flat tomato because people don't know exactly how to to um, to say what they think about it. So I would encourage any reviewers who are Rotten Tomatoes reviewers go out there and put up your review there. I I, um, I hate seeing our movie with the Rotten Tomato on. on on uh, Prime and, and 
Yeah, it's Rotten Tomatoes is one of those things where people look at it, they see like, oh, this is a hundred percent fresh or whatever, and they think, well, that's it's an it's an A plus movie, and it could just mean that one person saw it and one person liked it. Yeah, it's it's not fair that it, that 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 um, metric follows a film. I don't think at all because it kind of takes away from the individuality of movies, you know. Um, yeah. You know, it's the one thing that every streaming platform puts on now. I really don't think it's fair. Um, but um, but it is what it is, really. Yeah, I, I miss those days where you just had one, you know, a couple of reviewers that you trust. And then you watch their reviews and it's like, all right, I know what their views are. And I normally sync up or I normally don't. So now I have direction on whether or not I might like this. But like any movie, you got to see it for yourself because your own experiences are going to they're going to dictate what you think about it. Yeah, and I do think one of the good things about films now is it's really like a marathon. Like a movie can come out and then show on Netflix five years in and then find their audience then. It's not just like killed by the opening weekend, which I find refreshing, which is great because, you know, who knows down the road, Ed Harris wins an Oscar, which he's due for, you know, people start to see our movie and realize, okay, cool, this is, where'd this come from, you know? Yeah. And and um, and that that's kind of new, you know? For sure. Well, I'm definitely going to have links to your film in the show notes so people can go check that out on uh, Amazon first and then on Tubi when that comes out. Anything else you want to direct people to, like social media or the Donner Party? Anything else you want people to check out? Yeah, I didn't have final cut on the Donner Party. So, you know, I, that's that's more of a painful story than it is anything ah. else. But uh, but it was a great experience. We went up there where where it actually happened. The original script was called The Forlorn, and it's just about a small group that breaks away from the Donner Party. But the distributor decided to sell it as the entire Donner Party experience, which it really isn't. It's just a small group that went to rescue the others. But it features a pretty cool performance from Crispin Glover, which yeah. uh, which I'm proud of because we we reined him in a little bit, and I think it's very <laughs> honest and. And, uh, Speaking yeah. of Letterman, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm pr- proud of the performances in that film. All the actors really went for it, and that, that was cool. But yeah, I'm at Instagram. I'm at Sharp Reef, and you know, right now I'm finishing a book. I've been working on it for ten years, and that's oh, wow. kind of the the main goal of life is to to get this book out there. It's a it's a story I've had with me for a long time. Oliver Stone actually a few years ago wanted to make a film of it. And it was like the most exciting Hollywood thing to have like this director. I love like really wanting to make my thing, but you know, he went off and did, did documentaries and finished his memoir, but uh, it's, it's a good one. I'm, I'm really proud of it. I put a lot of effort into this novel. Can't wait to see that. Yeah. Well, hopefully um, you'll see it or, or read it first. <laughs> There's a lot of things going well for Terrence Martin, including Getaway If You Can, which is now streaming on Tubi. Again, you can find a link to that in the show notes. What stuck in nature films did we miss? What are your favorites? Let me know at Force5Pod on Twitter, at Force5Podcast everywhere else. Your comment might just make the next show. While you're at it, take a minute, rate and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Getting the word out about Force 5 is the only way that the show grows. Intro and outro bumpers today come courtesy of Nate Spears. The Top 5 List bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go watch some movies about characters being stuck in nature. Nature.